Hello, welcome to the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Wilson. And my name is Scott Powell, and this is the Word of the Hill podcast. Father Peter, um, if I may, before we get full-blown into the podcast, I have to make an apology for last week. So last week, um, we're kind of coming off a of Christmas break, SLS. There's a million things going on for yep. both of us. So I had to put on a rerun. But here was the problem that I didn't realize till after I put the rerun on. I searched three years ago, and I found in 2016 the episode from the Baptism of the Lord, which was the feast that we celebrated last Sunday. Okay. But in 2017, which was actually three years ago, we didn't celebrate the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord because the liturgical calendar was different. Okay. So I, I put on the wrong podcast from the wrong year, but the irony is that the readings were all actually exactly correct as to this year, except for the gospel. Oh. So for all of you priests that preached on the wrong gospel and every other <laughs> reading that was correct, I'm sorry. And I realized that a little bit too late, but but le- last year was a liturgical anomaly based on when Christmas fell and everything else. So I'm go. sorry, but it was the the week was uh, it was a difficult week for both of us. But we are back live, and we are so happy to be with you. Absolutely, and I want to give a shout out from Patty King. Patty wants, King wants to shout out all the people in Wollongong, Australia. Wollongong, Australia. Where is that? Do you know? Um, uh, Wollongong is in a. It's a very special place in Australia. I have no idea. Do not do not check my geography. What a great <laughs> answer, though. I shouldn't have asked you that question. But specifically, a very special place. Lachlan and Nick. Okay. Lachlan and Nick. Um, you guys, all of Australia is on fire. It's. If devastating what's actually going on. For those of you who aren't aware or aren't privy to what's happening, the, the fires there that are absolutely devastating. I mean, if you were to uh, superimpose... Have you seen that superimposition yeah, yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah. If you take Australia and you put it on top of United States of America, which is a, a equivalent in size. It's actually closer than I realized. It's like the entirety of the United States of America It's is like fire. a third of it. it I right. mean, it's an... Abs- it's... So please, if you're in Australia, our our Stop prayers go out for with you. Matches. If you're not in Australia, our prayers go out to you. Um, yeah. And uh, God, uh, God protect you. Yeah, no, you guys really. I I am really sad that you guys are having to face seriously such. Um, John McCauley, I love you. Mm. Everybody in Australia, you guys are wonderful, and our prayers go with you. And I'm really sorry that your whole continent's on fire. Yes, as am I. That sounds like a setup for a joke, but it's not. I know, that's, I that's know. The, like, the drama really, of this situation. You guys, like, so, you know, it's like... Uh, so pray for Australia. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. So, like, what I know is that oftentimes... It's Thursday. When the very worst things come, yeah. oftentimes that what's going to follow in its wake is going to be so amazing. So... Hmm. Don't lose heart. Keep hope in your in your hearts, and yeah. uh, and remember that like God sees you and He knows your suffering, and uh, He is going to do amazing things, especially in Wollongong. Especially in Wo- Wollongong. Wollongong, you guys are awesome. We love you. Um, we do. But for now, another thing is is that we are in the second Sunday in ordinary time. Another thing is yes, <laughs> uh, the second Sunday in or- second Sunday in ordinary time. Our first reading this week is coming from the book of Isaiah. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> seriously. Somebody actually, yes, literally yesterday at work was like, Scott, I, I listened to the podcast and I feel like Isaiah is your favorite book of the Bible. And I'm like, <laughs> it is not. 
I'm terrified of Isaiah. But in the liter- the liturgical cycle just have has Isaiah a lot. It shows up in this time of the year. So No, no. Isaiah never stops. I I've decided never that stops. like literally like we're going to be in stop, the book of stop. Isaiah forever. Yeah, okay. we will because the liturgical cycle keeps repeating itself. Yep. So our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 3 and then jumping to 5 through 6 because 4 isn't worth it. Stinking okay. 4. Okay, um, let's see. Psalm, you? and then yeah, that's me. <laughs> now you do. Cool. Everything's fine. Like. Everything's you fine. Everything's fine. Like. Just move on. Just keep plowing through. <laughs> I'm gonna turn my sound off. Okay. <laughs> Psalm forty verses two, four, seven, and ten. Seven. All right, 10. seven through ten. That's fair. Our second reading is coming from First Corinthians, the very beginning of First Corinthians, chapter one, verses one through three. And then our gospel is uh, the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. That's right, which I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> I, like, I like that you had to you know, say that I was right. I'm just affirming you. <laughs> We've been watching uh, uh, Mr. Rogers reruns on Amazon Prime with right. our kids, which I love Aunt Mr. Rogers, man. He's a Aunt, good man. Aunt Mr. Rogers? Is that what you just said? What did I say? Aunt Mrs. Rogers. No, no. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Do you know that the for you parents out there who were raised in the same generation as me, there are Mr. Rogers reruns on Amazon Prime, which you can watch with your kids, which he's just good. He When I was little, I actually thought it was like, for kids who couldn't keep up with like the fast pace of Sesame Street, like Sesame Street <laughs> was just a little too quick moving, but he's just he's just good. Um, there's a goodness to Mister Rogers, and I I like it. Why did I start talking about that? I have absolutely no idea. I don't either. Well, anyway, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty nine. So let's <laughs> talk about that. Isaiah chapter forty nine. Our first reading this week is one of uh, it's the second of I think four right. Of the servant songs. So in the book of Isaiah, there are these um, these passages that are known as the servant songs, which were basically these um, explanations of Israel in its idealized state. They're, they're foreshadowings, they're prophecies in a very real sense of what is to come, and Jesus will embody them. But in the time that they're written, there are these prophecies about Israel in her idealized, what what Israel is supposed to be, right? In a certain sense. So Isaiah 49, we get the kind of beginnings of it. <laughs> That's not right. Father Peter's throwing chocolates at me. Um, it's because it's, it's, it's the nature of things, you know? It is the nature of things. So uh, this is the second one. It says, The Lord said to me, You are my servant, which is partially where we get the title, Servant Songs. You are my servant, Israel, through whom I show my glory. Now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb, that Jacob may be brought back to him and Israel gathered to him. And I am made glorious in the sight of the Lord, and my God is now my strength. It is too little, O Lord, says... Uh, the Lord says for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the survivors of Israel. I will make you light to the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. So the, the, the servant songs, there are four servant songs in Isaiah, and they are given to the people of Israel in one of their darkest periods where exile is looming, the civil war has happened, where things are dark and grim, and it feels like they're just getting beat up beyond recognition. And they're promised this moment when Israel finally becomes who Israel is meant to be. But the thing that's significant about the second one here in Isaiah 49 is that 
this second servant song makes it clear that the servant is not simply Israel in her idealized form, which is often how the ancient Jews sort of read these. But there is someone else who is going to make Israel what she was supposed to be. Because this particular servant song, so the Lord said to me, you are my servant. And actually, by the way, this this kind of beginning of Isaiah 49 sounds like the very famous calling of Jeremiah at the beginning of his prophetic book, where it says, when, when I was in the womb, the Lord knew me and he called me and he set this vocation before me. But it talks about how the Lord who formed the servant is going to have this task of make not just being Israel in her idealized form, but Israel, um, or this rather this figure who's going to make Israel what she was supposed to be forever. So this is being written obviously after the war that sort of split Israel in two parts from the Southern kingdom and the Northern kingdom, which was then conquered by Assyria and scattered to the winds. And this is a prophecy about the day that the Lord is going to actually bring all of Israel back together and make the family who was scattered and who was broken into a whole again, which of, of course, from the Christian purview is, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But from the, the, the view of Israel, it's looking forward to this time that we're all dreaming of, we're all hoping of, we're all hoping for a day when Israel is to be what she was always supposed to be, which we are experiencing all of this hardship, all of this heartbreak, all of this grief of what Israel was supposed to be and what she failed to be. But someday the Lord will step into human history and he will set things right. That's what this servant song is about when he will gather all the tribes back together and make Israel what she was supposed to be, which is a light to the world, the salt of the earth, the city on a hill, the example to the world to call all nations back to the one true God, Right, which is kind of cool. I think about the the idea of glorified, because it's repeated. It says, I will be glorified. Yeah, doxa in in Greek. Doxa. I will be magnified. We hear this in the uh, Magnificat of Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my soul magnifies. Magnifies, yeah. Glorifies the Lord. Like, this is actually the real great challenge. I mean, we look in, how do we experience this now? I mean... We experience in a, in a real way a fractured church. Like, like Say that one more time. We experience a fractured church. Okay. Like, th- how many people say to themselves, oh, I can be this kind of Catholic, I can be this kind of Catholic, I can yeah. be this kind of Catholic, versus saying, like, no, I am Catholic, which is this universal reality, saying... Well, it's always, I am Catholic, but with a, with a qualifier. Right? With right. The, I'm that kind of Catholic, though. Right. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Versus saying like, no, I'm going to be glorified. What is glory? But but like bringing the profound meaning of what it really means to be entirely human and entirely invited into the divine life of God. So Israel, like we are the new Israel and we're being invited into that. And it's actually really, I don't know, like... I look right now and I'm like, the, the, you and I have experienced a tremendous amount of challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. In, in our personal lives and we're saying. Because this is a hard moment just historically in the church. Right? right. The church is going through some trials right now very in a very real way. Right. Yeah. And that's where, um, I, th- th- I mean, this has always been a little bit of a refrain for me in my priesthood where it says, it's too little for you to be my servant. 
which, I will make which, you a light to the nations. The, these are the two things. It's like there's a certain there's a certain amount where like, dude, I love me some yeah. Downton Abbey. You know? Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. Okay. Did you yeah. see the movie? No. Okay. Neither did I. Okay. It just looked like a really beautiful but boring version of the show. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that online. I, I don't want to get sued. Yeah, you're <laughs> but, gonna be. I'm gonna. Sue I you. love Downton Abbey. I have a huge love for Downton Abbey. So the other day, I turned to uh, my parochial vicar, Father Sean. I said, uh, "Father Sean, you got to check out Downton Abbey. He, yeah. Have you ever watched it?" And he was like, "No." And I turned on <laughs> onto it, and he was like, "Oh, he was super intrigued." Because it's really a gripping narrative, right? What's the difference between being a servant and being a light to the nations? And like, this is actually one of the most powerful things that I. Th- can continue to think about like we are a people who when we serve we become a light well that's really there's something important in what you said though because there's a line in in his theologians have noted this because there are a number of servant songs in isaiah but this one the second one actually makes a distinct uh, uh, uh there's a there's a there's a um a departure here because the servant songs always sort of point to Israel in her ideal form, which I mentioned. But in this one in particular, it said, it is too little, like you just quoted, it is too little, O Lord, it is too little, says the Lord, for you to be my servant. Right. Which says that there's actually something outside of Israel that is necessary to come into Israel. Mm. So this is actually the one that says it's not just Israel in her, in her idealized form. Mm. There's something more that Israel needs to become who she needs to be. And so this is a servant song that is pointing toward God needing to step in and make Israel into what she ought to be. Right. It's beyond Israel. There's something more than what we actually have the capacity for that's necessary here. Right. I mean, imagine for a, for a second, you guys, that the service that you are offering towards God is actually transformed and is meant to be elevated into something that's to behold. And yeah, actually, th- yeah. that's actually one of the things that's frightening about the kind of humbleness of Christianity. Yeah. Is it, is it like there's an arrogance that can creep into Christianity where Certainly. you're like, I'm supposed to be light to the nation. Certainly, Woo! of course, of course. But but when you actually find somebody who says, I am willing to serve the Lord, yeah. and now all of a sudden that's raised up and to behold. Yeah. There's something really, really powerful in that that says, you know what? You because there's actually... something powerful about service. There's something powerful about absorption. Right. Of saying, I will take this upon myself. Right. Which is fundamental to what Christianity is, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is what you're saying. Which is like Mary, where Mary's like, yes. I'm going to serve. Like, you want me to have this baby? Okay. That's her fiat, right? The yeah. great yes. My okay, soul I will take this upon myself. Magnifies the Lord. Yeah. My soul glorifies the Lord. Oh my gosh, that's so um, important to what we're going to see in the gospel later right. on. That's a Absolutely. great setup. Well done. Which is where we get into the psalm. Yeah, we, so we keep moving. So, Psalm 40 Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will which is the words that a true servant would speak to his master, right? Right. So we talked about for the first reading as the servant song, and the servant being Israel in her idealized form. What is Israel supposed to be? Israel from the beginning of human history was supposed to be God's light to the world. Right. 
But the story of the Old Testament is of God's light to the world constantly putting themselves out, constantly quel- uh, you know, squelching the light and putting the light out and becoming like all of the things around her. But while the, the truth is, is this line, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. So in truth, you know, Psalm 40, historically speaking, was understood to be a prayer that was prayed for help when troubles come around. It's historically understood to be one of the many Psalms of David, mm. who, which he prayed when, he, uh, well, to, it's twofold, sort of. So David, David's kind of known for two things, right? David is known on one hand for being the true king of Israel, right. who was hunted down and persecuted for his life by a false king. Right. And, on the other hand, he's also known as the true king of Israel who fell into grave sin, recognized his own sin, and sought forgiveness from the Lord. Right. And in Psalm 40, we kind of see both. Here I am, Lord. I know who I am. I know my shortcomings. I know my failures. But yet I come to do your will. I've waited for the Lord. I've waited for him. I, he stooped down. He condescended right. to me right. and he heard my cry. He's become one of me. God lowered himself to us to raise humanity up to himself. Right? Dude, this is the whole thing is like I keep on looking in scripture for the demonstration of the surrender prayer, the surrender novena. The novena, yeah. Like I pray the surrender novena. Every day, dude. The surrender novena will mess you up if you if you take it seriously in yeah. in, in the best possible way. Right, right, right. It says like, Lord, here I am. Like, Lord, I surrender myself. You take care of everything. I'm yeah. gonna actually surrender myself to you, to acknowledging that you are greater than who I am. And so, as we go, it's a sacrifice and offering you do not want. You opened my ears. You opened my ears. You said, Lord, like. I'm going to be able to receive the world around me. And that's actually really hard to do. Like this is, this is the thing that that's so hard is it's like, Lord, you're going to invite me into what it means for the redemption of the world to participate in it. And what it means is that I'm going to open my eyes. I'm going to open my ears and I'm going to actually be able to see and understand what you're doing, but I'm still going to remain vulnerable to the fact that you are the one who's doing it. Because what I want in my own will is that I would be the one who would accomplish those things. Yeah. Versus saying like, no, I actually am going to, even in my perception, even in my be able to, being able to witness those things, I'm going to actually surrender my will to say that you're the one who's going to accomplish those things. Absolutely. And Which is really the prayer of all of the Psalms, yes. is that not me, but you. Right. Which, and in a very real way, actually, not to get ahead of ourselves, points us toward the gospel, which is... We have a second whole, reading to do. Bro. I know we do. I know we do. But but the whole, really, the, the theme of John the Baptist's life is this this verse that says, I must decrease, he must increase. It's less about me and more about you, which is exactly what you're saying in a right, real way. Right. So it shows us how the Old Testament is is constantly pointing so specifically toward the New Testament. Yes. And John's life. But well, between there, like you say, is, the, is the second a, reading. a totally unintelligible first Corinthians. No, the, no, no, the, it's not. The beginning it's not. of First Corinthians, okay? No, it's not unintelligible. It's, it's totally very, unintelligible. It is dude. very intelligible. I have no idea what this means. Okay, I've really got some thoughts. The other ones. I've got some thoughts. Okay, hit me. 
All right. So like you said, though, this is the very first lines of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, by the way, just just as a, as a, as a, a side note, I suppose, I am convinced and I've been taught by mutual teachers of ours, Tim Gray in particular, who Who's comes to totally mind, awesome. who taught me so much about Tim Gray was of the school of thought, if I am articulating him correctly. Probably not. First, <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> but he was of the school of thought that First Corinthians is probably the letter of Paul that is most akin to our cultural situation, right? So the city of Corinth was, okay. yeah, right. No, no, you know the, what I'm talking the, about. This is the thing: is that like Corinth is like totally filled with themselves about how great they are philosophically. Yep, they they're have, big on themselves. They have big heads. They have big heads. They they're, love sports. They're super into their sports teams. Because <laughs> the Isthmus Games, which was games. the close little brother of the Olympics, which were always trying to show the world how much, how, how like the Olympics they were. Yeah, I mean, it was is, also a city of hedonism, right? It was a Corinth was a big port city where people are always coming and going, which meant that the, you know it was kind of one of those cities in the world where what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. <laughs> they were known for their sexual immorality. They, uh, they were known for their sin. Right. Um, there was a saying, Sosthenes, I, Sosthenes, which was a, a famous um, Greek poet actually developed a term called the Corinthian girl or Corinthianized, which was the worst insult you can give somebody because it meant to to practice sexual immorality. In a pretty but intense way. When your name when the name of your town your hometown is made as a derogative term towards something people are doing, that tells you you're not you're not doing great, right? Right, right. Like, so Corinth was a mess. Right. Like Sodom. Kind of, in a certain sense, right? right. To, to you know, what were you doing last night? Oh, I was out drinking and Corinthianizing, right? That was the thing that people said. So Corinth was a mess, right? And what what we find in the letter of First Corinthians is that it wasn't just that the city of Corinth is a mess, because there's a lot of cities that we all who are listening to the podcast live in that are a mess, right? But it was the issue, and this is what Paul is writing to, that the church within Corinth was a mess. Right. Yes, the culture is what it is. The broader society is what it is. But the job of the church is to be the antidote for society. And what we see in Corinthians is that the society has crept into the life of the church. Right. And now what we see in the church is both unparalleled and even greater in terms of sin and darkness as what we're seeing in the rest of society. But... If you're interested, St. Paul, what does he do? Is he actually, he's actually recognizing that um, he says grace and peace, which is a typical kairi ishalom. So it's actually saying like, no, you have to know that the, the grace of the Greeks and the peace of the Jews are actually coming together, that it's actually a place of confluence. Yes. That's actually one of the most powerful things about Corinth is that sh for sure, Yes, you have all the craziness of the secular kind of the Corinthian Corinthian life, but you have the kind of re retired military from uh, that's Philippi. That's that Philippi. Yeah, you're conflating. Dang it! It's all right. You're cool. Yeah, you're cool. No, no, but you have you have all, all of the <laughs> the cultural realities of the nation. Isn't it great that I can even before you finish your sentence, I know exactly what you're thinking, dude. We've been together for a your, long time. I can correct your bad theology <laughs> even from this far away, dude. If only, I love if it. only I that's had beautiful. somebody like whispering to me at, at the uh, pulpit. <laughs> but that's kind of beautiful in a certain sense. It's like I knew what you were doing. It's actually really. <laughs> 
Thanks for that. Yeah, no, I love but it. No, no, but like what's happening is, it's but you're like, right. It's you have the confluence of an immoral culture, yes, a great Greek culture, yes, and a great um, Israelite culture all coming together in Corinth to try to a very f- small Jewish population. But we do have archaeological records of a, a, a synagogue that was in Corinth, so we know there was Jewish influence in this town, specifically about Sosthenes, who was actually a persecutor of the church. Was he? Yeah, Sosthenes, if you look in the Acts, he goes totally crazy and is actually a persecutor of Paul. And that's actually what's so beautiful is Because at this point, he's accompanying Paul. And, absolutely. And probably bearing this letter to the city. Absolutely. So what happens is that really? is, is Sosthenes was a synagogue leader. I who didn't was, know that. Who was a persecutor of Paul who was like, you're totally crazy. Was he but, the guy that beats Paul up? Absolutely. And like punches him in the face and uh-huh. kicks him out of town? I forgot about. Well done, Father. I I actually studied today. That's kind of cool. That's actually like that's the best part. Is like I you you have to know. That's cool. That's cool. When I study and we have a podcast together, it's so much blows it up. Yeah. Then you're all of a sudden like, oh, Sosthenes was a punk who had a profound conversion. That's beautiful. Who is a synagogue leader? Who is actually Paul was kicked out of Corinth at one point, right? Wasn't he? Wasn't he beat up by the synagogue leaders and kind of kicked out of town? I don't know. Or am I? Is that a different town? Uh, it's probably Philippi. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Okay, so kidding. check this out. Check okay. this out. Hit me. So if you read this, this is a very short second reading, by the way. But if yeah. you read it, it says this: Paul. So track with me for a sec. I'm tracking. Paul. So this is the beginning. So every traditional letter, not just in Paul's canon, but in the Roman world. Okay. So you know, in 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 our common modern parlance, right? When we write a letter or an email to somebody, we put our name at the end, right? In the ancient world, they put their name at the beginning, which is actually more efficient if you think about it. If you're writing a long letter, it's nice to know who's writing it first. So that you would always put the name, the, the signature at the beginning. Oh. And then you would give the greeting and then you would give the body of the letter. So we're, we get some a semblance of that in 1 Corinthians. So he begins with the signature. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, this per- former persecutor, our brother, who has become now our brother, persecutor turned brother, uh, to the church of God. So first the signature, then the address, right? To the church of God that is at Corinth. To you who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be holy, with those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Mm. Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um. Here, and if you keep reading the intro to the letter, the word that you see repeated, whenever you see a word repeated in Paul more than any other, it tells you that you need to kind of stand up and pay attention to that word. And if you read this little passage, one of the words you see repeated over and over and over again is the word call or called. Mm -hmm. So he says, Paul, I'm called to be an apostle. To those of you who are called to Jesus Christ, I call upon you. Call, 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 call. Um, It's significant that Paul keeps repeating the word called because he's trying to remind this church in Corinth who is kind of submitting in a certain way to the culture of the time to who their true, what their true identity is, which is if you kind of trace it backwards to this reality that we see in the Psalm of the, the Israel in its idealized form. You Corinthians, even though 
the culture around you is corrupt, even though you have fallen to these certain sins, you are called to be a particular type of people in the world. You have been called. I am called and I am calling upon you to remind you of, of your identity, which is your call in Jesus Christ to be set aside. You are. So what we see in 1 Corinthians, I guess what I'm what I'm in a roundabout way getting to, is that 1 Corinthians is trying to demonstrate that the church, both in Corinth in the first century and in Boulder, Colorado in 2020, is called to be the servant of Isaiah 49. We are the ones who are called, or sorry, sorry, Isaiah, uh, Psalm 40. We are the ones called upon by God to be Israel as Israel was called to be, to be the royal kingdom, the royal priesthood, the light to the world, the salt of the earth, the ones who stand on the hill to give the light to all the nations to whom God actually is. We are called to witness. And to live in Corinth in the first century, in this part of the world, in this time period, which was, you know, like the Las Vegas of the first century, right? Steeped in all sorts of stuff that's going on. Paul is saying, no, your true identity is to be the light to all of the nations. It's not what Isaiah was talking about was not simply reserved to some random individual that is held on some pedestal that none of you actually know. It is an identity that is embedded to each of you in your baptism. You are called to be the light to the world no matter where you exist in your culture. That is who you are and that is who you are called to be which is a beautiful um, note. Absolutely. Here's my question. What's, okay. light, what's light for? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 to, to, to dispel darkness? For seeing. For seeing, yes, that's what I said. Which is, which is what... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is what's, what brings us into the gospel. Okay, okay, talk to me. Okay. Next... I love this gospel passage, by the way, and I have, I have, I, I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by it. Okay, I have to tell you, as a preacher, I'm like, what? I, we had the baptism of the Lord last weekend, bro. Right, and and sorry again, once again, my apologies for the wrong readings for the podcast that I put out to all of you. <laughs> the the Old Testament readings were all correct, but just the gospel was off. I feel so bad about that. You should. I so do. It's, it's okay. Good. Okay, good. I'm glad you're repenting. I'm glad we talked about this. Yeah. No, this thing is, is if you look, okay, did you ever play tennis, Scott? Yes, I played tennis. My brother and I used to go up to the Louisville Recreation Center on so many evenings and play tennis with him. He was really good at it, and I was really bad at it. Hmm. But um, God I always thought that. tennis was a really nerdy sport until yeah. my brother played it. And you know your big brother? You have a big brother, right? The big brother is always like the definition of cool. Right. And my brother played tennis and I was like, well, tennis must be cool. Cause my brother plays it. My brother drove a 19, like 96 Ford Taurus. And he was able, cause brothers do this, right? <laughs> he convinced me that the Ford Taurus was the coolest car in the world. <laughs> and to the degree that when I was in, when I was like in middle school, I had a poster, I had a poster in my no, bedroom of no a Ford Taurus. Cause no. like my brother drives a Ford Taurus, which means it's the coolest car in the world. 
So yeah, I played tennis only because my big brother <laughs> played tennis, and because he played it, I thought it was the coolest sport in the world. Dude, that makes me really yeah, totally happy. tennis. Yeah, I yeah. sucked at it. I I stunk at tennis, well, but yes, I played it. Okay. He was good. I was not. So, tennis, sword fighting, and table tennis all are connected together. Okay. <laughs> Did you just say? <laughs> sorry, just to just to pause there. Did you say sword fighting and table tennis are the same as tennis? Yeah, absolutely. We're all, all right, the I'm same thing. I'm gonna let you go off on. So, this. so this is the key: is that when you're playing tennis, okay, what you're trying to do strategically is establish a rhythm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm tracking. And then you break the rhythm. Okay. So what happens is that you're like, oh, rhythm, 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 break the rhythm. And like, you're like forehand, 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 backhand, boom. And then you're like, oh, I can't get to the ball and I'm a loser and I lost. Right? Yeah, totally. Right, exactly. Sword fighting's the same way. And then you're like, I couldn't get to the thing and I'm dead. (laughs) Sword fighting. (laughs) I did not think you were going to pull that in. But okay, I'm I'm tracking. So I was a table tennis club president and founder. No, you were not the table club tennis president and founder. Yeah, in you were the coolest human being alive, dude. I mean, hey, it's hard to be me. All right. So, what happens <laughs> is that um, what we establish in in the this reading from the Gospel of John one twenty nine to thirty four is a rhythm. He saw, behold, he I have seen, behold, I have seen, I am a witness. So, what happens is that is that when we're looking in this gospel. The 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 act the action of being able to see the one John the Baptist saw Jesus. What it says it says on the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, "Behold the Lamb of God." And then John said, "I have seen the Spirit descending upon him from heaven." And then he says, uh, "And and then behold the Spirit descending upon him." And then he says, "I have seen and now I testify." Martyron. And this is the thing: is the, is the, is the, the rhythm established of seeing. And then beholding, seeing, beholding, seeing, and witnessing is absolutely one of the most powerful things I've seen because you actually see it continuing in the Gospel of John. Okay, what you just said is a huge setup because actually the way that John establishes this story is testimonial. It's like a law court setup if you read it carefully. Right. And there are three sort of... um, well, actually, he sets up in days. There's three waves or days of John's witness. Mm. And each time you actually see people coming up against John to challenge John and John defends. So there, there's really three questions. The first question you see in the testimony of John is, remember, so John's baptizing in the wilderness. He's doing what he's doing. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders come and say, are you the Christ? Are you the one who we've been anticipating and expecting and whom the Old Testament and Isaiah and the Psalms prophesied? And a number of times, John, if you recall from the story, he says, I am not, which is really masterful in the way that John structures his literary narrative. Because remember, one of the things that is significant in the Gospel of John John is structured in some ways around Jesus' seven I am statements. Remember this? I am the light of the world. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the, the truth and the life. I am, I am, I am. John ego begins. Me ego and me, right? Yeah. Right. John begins by saying, I am not. And three different times, John will say, I am not the Christ. 
I am not the one who is to come. I am not Elijah. He sets up the I am by saying again and again, three times, I am not, yeah. right? right? Which is actually really, really uh, fascinating. So the first question that the religious leaders bring to him is, why are you baptizing? Who are, sorry, rather, why, who are you? And he begins the explanation of who he is by explaining who he is not. Right. I'm not the Christ. And then they say, and this is where we kind of pick it up this week. They say, well, why are you baptizing? And they said this in chapter one, verse 25, right? Why are you baptizing? And he basically says, basically, one is coming after me who will baptize you, not just with water like I'm doing, but one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? Um, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, right? So he says all of these I am not statements, and then these statements toward one who is coming who is so much greater than I am. And I've been, even just earlier today, I was reflecting on this passage, which I find so, the the, the familial nature of this, I've been, um, yeah, reflecting on, wrestling with, struggling with, I've been thinking about family stuff a lot lately. Right. And so um, in this sort of second round of testimony, in a certain sense, when the religious leaders are coming to John, basically, basically they're seeing, okay, there's this guy out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness at the Jordan baptizing people, getting them to confess their sin externally and giving them this, this sort of external water sign of having been cleansed. This is not sacramental baptism, by the way. This is an external sign of an internal commitment. People saying, I want to be cleansed of my sin. I want to show outwardly that I am rejecting my sinful life. Right. And John is baptizing them as a, this external sign. It's not sacramental yet. And they come to him and they're like, why are you doing this? Who are you? What's going on? And the only reason their attention is drawn to it is because he's having great success. Everybody's coming. And they say, it says, John the Baptist, this is where we pick it up this week. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. So he's doing this. People are criticizing him. People are challenging him. People are questioning him. And then he sees Jesus, who is his older cousin. He's met Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He knows Jesus. Right. And then he sees Jesus coming and he says, oh, I'm, I'm utterly fascinated, Father Peter, by this moment that John... John has spent a lot of his life preparing the way. John says, remember, he's not the Messiah. He says he's not a prophet. He says he's not Elijah, which Jesus directly contradicts. Remember this later on? Jesus says, no, John the Baptist was Elijah. But John the Baptist didn't know. I mean, he didn't know he was Elijah. I'm fascinated by the idea that we can fulfill vocations in the world that we don't even know we are fulfilling. We can do things in the world when we don't even realize it. Dude, this is like we go back to the first reading and what does it mean to glorify God, but to actually be in the midst of that. And that's actually what's so powerful is that like we actually can do and glorify God without actually having cognizance of it. Exactly right. So he's doing this thing and then he sees Jesus coming and I'm totally fascinated and intrigued at this moment where he's like, oh there's my older cousin walking toward me. And there's this light bulb moment where he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right. And he says, 
He is the one that I've been speaking about. He's the one that I've been talking about. He's the one of whom I said, a man is coming who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him. Now, of course, John knows him. Of course, John grew up with his cousin. He doesn't rank before him chronologically because John was born first, right? He's actually older than Jesus. But there is this person in John the Baptist's life who he didn't real. I'm 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 being convoluted, but I'm I'm fascinated by this moment. So here's a a theological principle that a friend of mine used once for me to explain, at least in his opinion, how the Book of Revelation worked, which is the con. So you know the concept of hindsight. Yes, hindsight uh, is looking uh, back. Twenty twenty. 2020, you could say, right? But looking (laughs) back over something and seeing something. But the idea of hindsight in the moment. So hindsight is usually something that we see after something happens. We look backwards on it. We're like, oh, that's how that worked. But John is getting the gift of hindsight in the moment of it happening. And Mm. he's in the moment seeing Jesus saying, oh, yeah, Jesus, my older or my my younger cousin who I've known, who I grew up with, who's been there the whole time. That there's this mo- the light bulb moment that something goes off in his head and he says, "Right." Right. That's th- th- it's it's like a memory of something that you haven't experienced yet. Right. Absolutely. Where he realizes Oh, everything is sort of coming together. And he says, I knew this guy, but I didn't know that that was the one to whom not just my own vocation, but all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, all of our history has been pointing toward, which is why John says, I didn't know him. Yes, I knew him as my cousin, but I didn't realize that my cousin was the one who God has been preparing. But now I have the consciousness of sight to say, right. yes, I and, get it now. And that's actually what it means to move from just seeing and to seeing, seeing. to testifying from seeing to testifying that's and, good and, and that's actually why it says he that's saw good. and behold he that's saw good. i've seen and behold i have seen i will witness and the only detail and, and, and that's that's actually where like when we look at john the baptist like when you have that realization in the immediate moment you say i actually uh, like martyrion uh, a martyria it, yeah. uh, a martyr is one who testifies and that's actually where we live now is that we get a chance to testify with the fullness of our lives. Mm. This is, and it's going to get more intense, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Like you're going to get a chance to testify with your whole life to what you have seen in the sun and you seen in your own life in the narrative of who who you really are. So take that. What you just said, we're only going to get a chance to testify to what we have seen. Here's what I find fascinating. Here's the other thing I find fascinating. In John's testimony to what he has seen, the only detail... So we get in the other Gospels a bunch of details of Jesus' baptism, right? Right. The only detail that John gives you here is that he saw the Holy Spirit come upon him like a dove from heaven, and it says he remained on him, which is the Greek word menos, which is what we translate as 
tabernacled. The one and only detail of the baptism, which a whole bunch of things happen in the baptism. The one only thing that we see in the Gospel of John is, I saw the Holy Spirit come down and tabernacle with him. Mm. So as things are going to get weird, John's going to get beheaded for Pete's sake. We know the end of John's story, and it's not going to be a pleasant one. There's going to be a real cross that John carries. There's going to be tremendous trauma that he endures on behalf of this. But the one thing he tells us in his testimony is, I saw the Holy Spirit, and he tabernacled among us. Mm. He tabernacled with Jesus. He came down Mm. and he remained with us, which is what presumably gave John the ability, the, the power, the strength to say, no, I can deal with whatever comes. Right. I can deal with being beheaded. I can deal with Herod. I can deal with all there is because I saw and I witnessed and I bear testimony to the fact that the spirit came and manod. It tabernacled. It remained. And as long as I know in my mind and in my eyes and in my heart that the spirit remains here, I can bear testimony. It doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't right. matter if I get beheaded. It doesn't matter what kings I get called before right. because I saw and I know. Right. And I can hold on to that because it's not an abstract principle. It's the presence of God tabernacling among us. And I can hang on to that. Well, friends, hang on to that. Hang on to it. Hang on to the witness of what you've seen and do not be afraid to become uh testimonial, a witness, a martyr for what you have seen and what you have behold in the Lord tabernacling in your own heart. So you guys are awesome. Thanks for listening. We love you. And uh, we can't wait for you to join us again soon. We'll be back next week. We'll see you then. Unless the world ends. Unless the world ends. And the world tabernacle to that. Amen. to that. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.